Well, good morning to you all. And we are continuing our series through the book of Revelation. Uh, This morning we're going to find ourselves in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, But before we come to the reading of God's word, before we hear it preached, uh, let's first come to God and let's ask for his his blessing upon his word uh, as as we we come and sit under it and uh, ask that it would take effect in us, take a hold of us, grip us, but not only grip us, but also change us and encourage us as well. So let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning as people who are in need of bread. We are in need of nourishment and food. As we confessed earlier in our affirmation of faith, you protect and and keep us uh, through your word and sacrament, through through this, uh, through your spirit working through your word. And so it is our life, and so give us an appetite for it this morning, but also give us a a taste to savor it. Uh, Would it come into us this morning and Give us the vitality that we need to strengthen our weary hands, uh, to uh, give strength to our feet, and allow us to see more and more clearly the work of Jesus. Uh, not just his work, but his, him as a person as well, uh, who is our life. So be all, also with uh, the, the preacher this morning. His sins are many, and he is a weak man, so would your spirit be upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us, and if you've been with us last week in particular, uh, Daryl preached chapters 11 and 12, or sorry, 10 and 11 of, of Revelation. And so if you remember, if you were here, chapter 11 ended with a description of the return of Christ. And so that's the end of it all, right? That's when he comes back. That's when he finishes what he began. That's when he comes and destroys sin and evil and death for for good. And he restores everything in goodness uh, with the glory of the Lord filling the earth. So if that happened in chapter 11, then first of all, why are we only halfway through this book? Uh, Why is there more to the book of Revelation? Why aren't these sermons over with already? Well, it's because in chapter 12, a new series of visions begin. Uh, You can think of it this way. It's not a new story that's happening here, but it's a complementary angle to the overall narrative, the same one that's been playing it out ever since chapter 4, since the beginning of Revelation here. Same story, different angle, different perspective. A revelation, we've said, is a book that it's intended to reveal Uh, It shows us the spiritual realities that are happening right now behind the heavenly curtain that's draped over our current experience of this age. And so this new series of visions then is going to pull back a different part of that curtain for us to look at. It's going to give us a complementary perspective of the things that the same events that are going on in the rest of the book of Revelation. The same events surrounding the victory of the conquering Lamb and then also of his church, who is victorious in him. Think of it like instant replay. You're watching a game on TV, and your team makes a big play. 
The quarterback lobs a fade pass into the corner of the end zone, and his receiver jumps up over two other defenders, catches it with his fingertips, and managed to, manages to get his foot in bounds. Touchdown. Uh, the forward makes a seemingly impossible shot and puts that puck then right between the legs of the goalie into the back of the net. We watch incredible moments like that, and we're stunned. Uh, we want to see it again over and over. Uh, we... Uh, we we want to watch it from different angles, admiring the beauty of the and the greatness of the play of the skill. We want to see it from every possible perspective. And then there's also the sideline replays there of, of the, the the coaches, the other players lifting their their hands in victory, yelling. You also have the players from the other team that we like to look at also as they put their eyes down and in, in defeat. Well, Revelation 12 is an instant replay from a different angle of Jesus' victory that we've already seen. Uh, this idea, it's a common literary tool that John employs throughout Revelation. It's not a different story. It's not a competing set of events, but it's the same events from a different perspective. And this new angle, when we look at it, will reveal to us a complementary understanding of what's going on. It highlights something different, just like watching instant replay in slow-mo. And so while the seven seals and the seven trumpets that we've seen before focus a lot on the wrath of the conquering lamb, this vision now is going to highlight the spiritual conflict that we're all too often ignorant of, whether that's willingly ignorant or not. And so let's read Revelation chapter 12. This is God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the kingdom and the power and the, or now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, 
he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured forth water like a, like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. So what's the alternate angle then that we get in this instant replay? It's a story with a dragon. We all know dragons aren't real, right? Sure, we like to imagine uh, that they're real. Many cultures worldwide, from Anglo-Saxon tales in the West to Chinese myth in the East, have some sort of dragon story. It's the heart of the classic fantasy tale, the knight entering the dragon's lair to rescue the princess, the band of warriors defending their town against the hateful dragon. We tell stories of dragons to our children, stoking their imaginations but always reminding them that dragons don't really exist so that they can sleep better at night. Dragons aren't real. Or are they? Revelation 12 tells us a dragon story. Guess what? This story is real. This story is as real and true as everything else around you is. Kids, dragons are real. Or rather, we should say there is a dragon That is real. And this story is as real as history itself because we see that this is a historical story that is played out in real life. But rather, it's real in a manner of speaking. Remember, Revelation uses all sorts of vivid symbols to convey uh, uh, spiritual realities, realities that might be shrouded to us from our earthly point of view. And that's the same idea here with with the dragon and this vision of the story that we have at hand. Because the story is a retelling and a continuation of another true story that all of us, every one of you here who's tuned into us watching over our live stream, every one of us who is here, and frankly, everyone else in the world who isn't here or watching this, everyone throughout history finds themselves pulled into. And this story The very real story here that has a bearing upon your existence of life as you know it does feature a dragon as an age-old adversary. If I ask you to draw a picture of a dragon, which I'm imagining some of you kids are doing right now, I'll bet most of you would draw a fire-breathing monster with wings and a long tail. You know, that classic dragon with the big muscular body. A lot of that image of a dragon is from our our modern Western version of a dragon. But other cultures with myths of dragons, imagine them not so much to be this big reptilian fire breather, but more serpentine. Sometimes you see renderings of dragons that are much more lithe. The long and slender body and, and neck with the writhing tail. Uh, Sometimes dragons like that are called worms, spelled with a Y, W-Y-R-M, because it's getting across that it's a lot more of of like a serpentine sort of dragon. 
And that's much closer to the picture of a dragon that would have been in the minds of John's original readers. You even see the dragon later described in verses 9 and 15 as a serpent also. So why do I bring this up? Because with this understanding, we begin to recognize a little more what this story here, this dragon story in Revelation 12, is a creative rendition of. Again, a very real story with bearing upon all of us. It's a a sequel, or it's a continuation of the story of Genesis 3. Of the fall of humanity and God's promise to do something about it. Genesis 3, if you're not familiar, is the story of the serpent, of a serpent, Satan, the great dragon deceiving Eve and Adam into believing a lie about God, about rebelling in pride, and then plunging the whole world into sin, death, and darkness. And this story has deep significance upon every single individual in the history throughout, uh, of, of the world. It explains futility and the spoiling of everything good in the world. It's why death and suffering are our common existence. It explains every ounce of guilt that you have. It explains every wrong that you've done. But this story, though, also has an even more intimate bearing for those who are God's own people. Because as as God began to describe the curse that was now falling upon his wrecked creation, the first words of judgment that he pronounced in the garden were upon the serpent. The serpent, the dragon here, was not to exalt himself in pride over his seeming victory because he would one day be crushed and would be rendered powerless. How would that happen? It would happen through a child, a son that God would give through the woman Eve then to crush and defeat him. And the son would bring an end to all the sin and death in, in the world, restoring the world back to its pristine glory. A savior of his people from the power of, of, the, of the, the serpent, that the serpent would not have victory. And this would be an ongoing war between the serpent and his offspring, those aligned with him, and then the woman and her offspring, both the coming son as well as all those whom he had, who would rescue. And even though then the crushing of the serpent's head by this coming son was promised then by God himself, The son, though, would not go also without suffering temporarily from a strike in the heel by the serpent. See, Genesis 3 is an origin story of God's plan to give hope to his people in a suffering world. And then Revelation 12 here, as a sequel to that, continues the action. It picks up the story. Genesis 3 ends with, to be continued. Revelation 12, then, as it introduces the imagery of the dragon, Revelation 12 begins from our last episode. And then the dragon then thrown down, defeated with the son who is born and then ascended in victory. This portrays the world right now. This is our current existence, though it might be unseen. And so our main point this morning is this. The dragon is defeated and is powerless over the church. The dragon is defeated and powerless over the church. And if you are in Christ... And he's powerless over you too. So let's look at the story. Uh, This is a reprisal of the story here. So let's get reacquainted with our characters from John's vision here. Uh, We first meet a woman in shining apparel like the sun. uh, Her feet over the moon. 
Now, where have we heard of a woman in this grand story before? Heard it from Eve, of the woman through whom God gave a line of children to be his people. She's crowned with 12 stars, 12 like the, like the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel for the Old Testament church of God, which then also, then you think, corresponds to the 12 apostles as the foundation of the New Testament church. See, however you cut it here, this woman is symbolic of the people of God, the community of God's people and the, the community of his promise of those who are living by faith, trusting in him. But there's one other important thing, though, about this woman. She's pregnant. And not only pregnant, but she's in the, in the midst of the throes and the groans and the pains of childbirth. She is anticipating a child being born, longing for him to be brought forth. This is the people of God looking for and longing for in a hopeful expectancy, even amid their pain and suffering for the promised offspring of the woman then to come and to set her free. She's not the only one that's waiting there. So there's also the dragon who's waiting for the birth of the child. Because he knows who the woman is about to bring forth. It's going to be her deliverer, but it's also his enemy and his conqueror. And he will do anything that he can to thwart that. So he stands by waiting for, for her birth and, the arri- and rival then to, to devour the child. And you have to imagine then the fear of that woman in that moment. In labor and in total vulnerability then before this powerful dragon waiting to strike her savior that she's about to give birth to. His description is one of great power. It says seven, horn, or seven heads and ten horns. Seven crowns, all this highlighting authority and power that's held in pride. A tail that sweeps down a third of the stars. An, an enemy to, to be reckoned with here. But then, though, you have the child. A son is born. And the unexpected, though, happens. The child breaches, a child comes forth and is born. The dragon's jaws snap. But then the son, though, eludes the dragon's maw and is caught up into heaven to the very throne of God. The son fulfills his destiny. This is Jesus, the Savior, who is also the promised king then to put an end to the dragon and his power. The dragon's plans to snare him failed. More literally, he tried to strike him at the cross by crucifying the son and putting them to death. But the snap of the dragon's jaws around him really just caught air as Jesus the Son emerged from the grave into resurrection. So that the power of death and the fear of death then that the dragon holds over us is now broken. All authority is given to Jesus the Son as he is caught up into the heavens with God the Father to sit enthroned over all. And meanwhile, the woman also escapes. She is protected and kept safe from the dragon's continued wrath for a period of time. And some of you might be thinking, well, this is a great story. It's pretty cool. But what does this have to do with me right now? It's this. We live in an era where the dragon failed to defeat the sun and himself was conquered. And we are the woman being kept safe and nourished in the wilderness. Couldn't help but note and think, think to myself this morning as we began our worship service, looking around here at Redeemer, those who are gathered here, we are 
This is the woman, the church, God's people who are being kept safe right now amid a time of deep turmoil and suffering and anxieties, birth pains almost. But yet being nourished, being kept safe, being preserved amid a generation of darkness. Amen. And the remaining chapter then, as we look here, is going to look at this great event then with instant replay from an alternate perspective. We're going to start looking through it. Verses 7 and, and, and onwards then are going to look at verses 1 through 6, the story of the dragon right there, from a different point of view. A showing us more of this intricate nature of the dragon's defeat from a spiritual perspective. And then we're going to look at the spiritual conflict and the defeat of the dragon in two particular ways here that have bearing upon all of us. And the first that we're going to look at here is the heavenly reality of all of the events that are happening that we see here. The heavenly reality. And it talks about all of this as warfare. As a heavenly war. The sun ascends. The woman flees. And then the camera shifts upwards to the heavens. And it sees then the archangel Michael and his angels who are locked in battle against the dragon and his, and his fallen angels. Although maybe we shouldn't even say locked in battle because it's really, <laughs> it's really a no contest. And, his, and then he casts them down out of the heavens. This brings up a few questions. Who is Michael? What's going on here? Based upon this and the rest of the biblical evidence, Michael, we understand him as being a captain of the heavenly host, of the, uh, the, the, the armies of the Lord. And then his victory, his battle here uh, over the dragon is a heavenly reflection of the victory of Christ that he waged in his earthly ministry and that he won. This is the war here that was won at Jesus' resurrection. And as Jesus declared victory, as he emerged from the grave, and as he was ascended into heaven, then Michael and the other angels then overpower and cast the dragon down upon the earth as a heavenly counterpart. Now Jesus in Luke 10, as he sends out his 72 of his disciples in an, in an earthly advance of his kingdom, as, as the, his kingdom goes forth, and begins to, to expunge the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the dragon here. When they come back to Jesus, he tells them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. See, the dragon, Satan, is defeated. His kingdom has come to an end, and he has no power over the church of Christ and the people of God because he has been thrown down with such speed that it's like a crack of lightning, and he lands with a boom. And this, right may, this might raise more questions in some of our minds. So let's not overly speculate, but stick to what we know. Because then we're given a hymn in verse 10 from the saints of God. And it declares the glory of his victory. And it gives us commentary on these events right here. Telling us what all of it means. And we've seen a lot of songs in Revelation. And here's another one. Uh, the songs and the hymns that we see over and over, they help to give clarity to the events and the visions that precede them. And this one's no different. And what's the song about? It says that Christ has defeated the dragon, and his saints have also overcome the dragon with him. And all this is taking place from a spiritual perspective. 
We need our minds awakened to the spiritual realities around us, to the conflict and the combat that is happening unseen around us. And I'll be the first to admit, this isn't something that I think about very often. Not because I don't believe it. It's because it's invisible and therefore not something that I consciously think of all the time. Or when I think of being tempted, I think about my own sinful inclinations of my heart which lure me rather than the enemy's involvement in that or using it to his advantage. Some people don't like to think about this because it sounds scary. Others people simply just dismiss it all because, after all, we're modern people, right? We've outgrown stories like this. But it's also something that we need properly grounded in truth because our ideas on Satan and the demonic are oftentimes more founded upon John Milton and pop culture than they are actually on the Bible. So who is Satan? Who is the dragon? What's he do? What does his dominion and power look like? Let's look at his names here. Verse 9, we have Satan. The, the word, actually, just the word Satan, Satan, which means adversary. Uh, the, the devil, which the devil in, in its uh, original language just simply means slanderer. A one who tells lies and defames. He slanders God's character. That's what he did to Eve by slandering God and telling her that he was withholding. And then he went around and slandered her against God. It says also deceiver of the world. Getting us to believe falsehoods about God, about reality, about ourselves. Giving false promises about what will really fill our needs. It also says in verse 10 that he's the accuser. He tries to accuse us before God and call us out as being guilty. See, feeling the attacks and the powers of Satan doesn't always look like a horror movie. In fact, it rarely does. No, he acts more in subtle, insidious ways as he melds deception and his accusations against us. He uses his deceptive nature in an attempt to allure us away from what we know. What we from what we believe about ourselves and God, to lure us away from what we hold as good. And then he uses our sinful natures to excite our own desires. And the worst part about all this, he's really good at it. And as soon as he gets us to fall for that trap, he slaps the chains on our wrists and he hauls us off to the courtroom to stand before the judge. And then Satan then takes the role of prosecutor at that point and accusing us before God of our our sins, our weaknesses, our failures, telling us all the while that we're alone, that we're unlovable, that we have no hope. And he levels all of his spiteful condemnation against us. But do not, though, forget the words of this hymn. The accuser of our brothers and sisters day and night has been thrown down. The accuser of our brothers and sisters, the dragon, Satan, has been thrown down because Jesus, who lived perfectly, who was crucified to atone for every sin of his people, who stands right now victorious in resurrection glory over the dragon, is Lord over all, and he enters the courtroom. And he tosses the dragon out of the courtroom and he locks the door And then he comes to your side and he stands as your defense attorney. He takes the perfect record of his life and his righteousness. He takes 
your file, he pulls it out. He takes his perfect file and he puts it in the folder with your name on it and hands it to the judge so that you're free. You may not feel like you're free, but friends, you're free. Guilt has no hold over you. You have no reason to feel shame at all because it has all been dealt with by the blood of the Lamb. Satan has no power over you if you are united to Jesus. But that's not to say that we still don't feel his attacks. There are times when we hear Satan still locked on the other side of the door, screaming his accusations at us and banging his fist on the door. And our ears perk up. Our our eyes dart back to that door and we begin to second guess if we really are guilty and condemned. When you feel the weight and burdens of your sins and of your unfaithfulness, when you feel absolutely humiliated and, and condemned, that's him bringing up all the guilt that has already been dealt with. When you feel the crushing guilt of being a poor parent, that's Satan accusing you. When you feel filthy and worthless because of your secret thought life or because of what you do in private, that's Satan bringing up your guilt yet again. When it seems as if you can't shake the consequences and the heaviness of a life that you have left behind, that's Satan telling you to pick up that weight of shame again and put it back on your shoulder. That's some of his most effective power. Not to pop out and scare you in the dark but to point out all of your shortcomings and to taunt you for all the ways that you failed to be enough, even though it's been paid in full and even though you are free. And in those times, though, listen to Jesus' voice. He calls us and he gently reminds us to draw our eyes back to himself and reminds us that his work is sufficient to cover all of your sins and that he has done it. That it's all finished. The dragon has no power to accuse you any longer. No charge can stick because of Christ who lives within you. And that's the heavenly perspective, what we see happening right there. But this vision continues to then describe the earthly experience, though, of the dragon's wrath. Verses 13 to, to the end, verse 17. It's really, you can think of this uh, being an elaboration of verse 6 that we saw, the woman fleeing into the wilderness. Now the dragon, now defeated and thrown down, does the only thing that he can possibly do, and that's wreck as much havoc as possible. And if he can't hurt the sun, then he will try his hardest to hurt what the sun loves, his church. He pursues the woman, again, a, a symbol of God's people, and he tries to destroy her. He threatens her with physical means as he pursues her, inciting nations and authorities to rise up against her. But God, though, gives her, gives her escape and carries her off to safety. So that then the dragon uses deception in an attempt to tear her apart. He sends water from his mouth to flood her. Now in Revelation, things coming from the mouth are symbolic of words. You have the, uh, the, the sword from the mouth of Jesus to strike the nations. Not a literal sword coming from his mouth, but it's his words. And the waters then from the dragon's mouth threatening to overwhelm the woman. Not literal waters, but words from the deceiver. And so we'll we'll look at these ideas later in Revelation. We'll elaborate on them there, but the point of it right now is this. 
Satan tries his hardest to assail and to destroy the church that Jesus loves. But Jesus loves his church and he comes to its defense. Even though he's caught up in the heavens, doesn't mean that he can't hear her cries or is unable to come and rescue her or to tend to her needs. But there's one more slight perspective shift that we have here. The replay camera catches one more angle in verse 17. Then the, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's like a replay that we just, of what, what we just saw, verses 13 through 16. And it gets at the reality of how you and I experience things right now. There is a spiritual reality which, is, which holds true where the woman, the church, is kept protected and kept safe. But there's also, though, the earthly reality that we face where it just seems like war. And there are times when it feels agonizingly long also. Because the woman is told to wait in the wilderness for 1,260 days. Or as it also says later here, a time times and half a time. It's a phrase that's used from Daniel several times where time in that context is understood to be a span of a year. And time, uh, times, which again in, in that Daniel context is referring to two and half a time. Again, if those are years, one plus two plus half, three and a half years. It's just the same span as 1,260 days in the Jewish calendar point of it here is that the church's era of waiting is long, a time, a year. And it will even stretch out in painful ways that seem to last forever, times. But then, though, it will be brought to a swift end when it is least expected and a predetermined end, a half time. And that's how we experience life right now. We're kept by God, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. It's costly. It even costs some people their own lives. It seems long and never-ending or without a path to the end. How long, O oh Lord? But the hope is that the spiritual reality continues to hold true even when we cannot see it and when our earthly ex experience doesn't quite square with it. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Look with expectancy and trust and hope in, in the one who is Lord over both body and soul. So we all need this vision and its voice speaking into our experience because it's much too easy to live functionally as materialists or anti-supernaturalists. When all we can see of our experiences right now are suffering and trial, when we do that, we live with our eyes focused horizontally and we forget or we are just plain ignorant of the spiritual reality. And as a result, then, we, we, we begin to live as cowards. We try to appease our persecutors. We become overly despondent and resigned to the matters that are at hand. But yet this vision of the dragon cast down, of his heavenly defeat and of Christ's enthronement, of our spiritual protection here, reminds us that there are greater realities at play than we initially perceive. And these realities are more true than our own human experiences, our own earthly experiences tend to inform us. Remember that the lamb who was slain 
has conquered the dragon by the blood of his cross, which also covers you. He is enthroned in the heavens at the Father's hand, but he doesn't leave you alone to suffer in silence. Though you walk amid very real sorrows and sufferings as the dragon assails you, the lamb walks alongside you in those times. He knows what it's like to suffer for righteousness. He walked that road all the way to the cross as the man of sorrows. And that allows him to have the deepest sympathy then for a church who is suffering and under attack. He knows what it felt like. He knows what it feels like more than any of us will. And that allows him to have a deep sympathy for his church and for its saints. For you even, as individuals, when you feel the pain and the loss and the anxiety of what it means to follow after him. Though it may seem as if all the gates of hell have been opened up against you. Don't try to stand on your own courage. Don't try to muster up your own strength. Because the conquering Christ is sympathetic to your weaknesses. And he stands alongside you to protect you and to nurture you in your times of deepest need. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the conquering lamb who has thrown down the dragon. That he no longer is able to accuse us because of your perfect righteousness for us. That even though we pass through times where we are, are bloodied and beaten up. Or even it just feels like our souls are beaten to a pulp. Cast our eyes upward to seeing who, how Jesus continues to stand for us and to love us and to care for us. And that, that, that is the reality which, which stands true. And that that is the, the, the hope that we need in the times when we experience hardship the most. Nourish, nourish us, even as we come to your table now. Strengthen us yet another week. In Jesus' name, amen.